This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. We competed against each other on Jeopardy. Kyle ended up winning seven games. And we've been chatting about the show ever since. Each week we start with analysis of this week's Jeopardy episodes. Then we move into a deep dive on a question or a category from one of those episodes. And we wrap it up with a quiz. It's good to be back. Oh yes, welcome back. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I missed this and all of you dear listeners, I missed you. But I'm back, no worries. I know you were all very concerned about the future of the podcast, but don't worry. Glad to have you back. (laughs) Thank you for editing that uh, that Stephen episode. Um, he was not Kyle was not with us, but he, uh, he on the back end of the podcast he was he was doing all of the heavy lifting. So um, is that a mixed metaphor? I think that's a mixed metaphor. Aren't those the best kinds of metaphors, though? I think they are. Anyway, let's get into it. Monday, January twenty seventh, we have Cheyenne Simmons, a baker and entrepreneur from Albany, New York. Sarah Frontiera a graduate student from Santa Monica, California, and Heather Nelson, a middle school math teacher from Lake Oswego, Oregon, whose one-day cash winnings total $7,799. And we kick off the Jeopardy round with the categories Buddhist temples, novels by chapter titles, phrase history, public television, inspiring women, and the 2019 Forbes Global 2000. And uh, there was there. There's always a little buzz um, whenever it's three female contestants up. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, not too surprising for a set of three female contestants. They headed straight for the inspiring women category and did pretty well with it. Yeah, and they they went straight through with the first five clues. I was I was surprised. Uh, the six hundred dollar clue in that category was a triple stumper. Mm-hmm. The clue is pioneering environmentalist Marjorie Stoneman Douglas is known as the woman who saved this Florida, quote, river of grass. Uh, Heather buzzed in and guessed what's the Sargasso Sea, uh, which is incorrect. Uh, it's the Everglades. And I don't know if maybe they were overthinking it mm-hmm. um, or, or, you know, sometimes you just blank. But that one surprised me that none of them got. Yeah. Uh, the Sargasso Sea, I think that is also a, like a trivia fodder question. I could be wrong, but I think it's the area in like the mid North Atlantic that is surrounded by a bunch of currents. So the water in the Sargasso Sea doesn't really like go anywhere, but it's not bound by any land. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's like the only sea in the world that isn't bounded by any land. Yes, I I didn't realize that about it. Although I did know, I'm kind of looking it up to remind myself right now. Um, I did know that it has like a characteristic like a, a lot of seaweed um and like a mm. characteristic color because of that and so it like i i can sort of see how you would how river of grass might sort of um spark a connection oh with that. okay that that makes more sense yeah yeah okay they headed to the public television category next which also was fun i thought it it was fun uh i like the 800 dollar clue Real programs on this type of TV seen in Wayne's World include the Mr. Science Show and Cast Iron TV, and that's public access television. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you never, you know, if you if you have some time to kill, uh, particularly in like the wee hours of the morning, 
check out public access TV. See what see what's on in your local area. Mm. There's some there's some fun stuff. Seeing uh, questions about Antiques Roadshow and uh, this old house was sort of nostalgic for me. Those were um, shows that would be on in like grandparents' houses and, and stuff mm-hmm. when I was growing up. All right, so we get Daily Double number one in the 2019 Forbes Global 2000 category at the $800 level. Heather finds it and wagers 2000. Uh, and the clue is. These two six-letter aircraft makers topped the aerospace section on the list. She took a little time, I remember, to, uh, to think about it. She said, what are Boeing and snuck in Airbus right at the end, uh, which is correct. So she bumps herself up. That was not a true daily double, but she was in a pretty significant lead anyway, so it just extended her lead farther. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the single Jeopardy round, she was in a pretty solid lead with 6,200. Sarah was in second place at that point with 3,600, and Cheyenne was in third with 1,200. And we get the double Jeopardy categories, the Middle Ages, Wrap It Up, Around the World, Dangerous Colors, Hit Music of Today, and M, T, promises. There's kind of a blank between M and T. Each correct response will begin with the letter M and end with T. I learned something, and I would have been incorrect on Jeopardy if I had been the one to get this clue in the Around the World category Mm -hmm. at the $2,000 level. The clue is B, the letter B in quotation marks, aware that this 19-mile-long straight splits Turkey into western and eastern portions. Sarah finds that she gets it correct with uh, what is the Bosporus. I think it's Bosporus. That's what I thought. Oh, it's both. It is It is either Bosporus or Bosphorus, oh, okay. like P-H. Okay, so I wouldn't have been wrong, but she was also correct with Bosporus. It can be one or the other. You would have been, in- oh, you would have been incorrect on Jeopardy just because you would have pronounced it with the P-H? Yeah, that's what oh. I was thinking. Yeah, that you, would I would have been, have said- you would have been ruled correct on that. Yeah, um. so I, I would have been, but I was worried that I've been learning it wrong this whole time. But mm-hmm. but, but no, apparently it's both. Yeah, um, the 1600 and $2,000 clues there are um, uh, were from two of the like most special trips I've taken in my life. I've been to the Maasai Mara in Kenya. As a child, actually, I had an aunt doing NGO work in that region and got, had the opportunity to go visit her. And... Uh, after graduation, before starting grad school, I went to Greece and Turkey. I was trying to remember the name of the other waterway in Istanbul, uh, which is the Golden Horn. The Bosphorus splits Turkey and, and Istanbul and runs through, you know, both sides of the Bosphorus are, are considered part of Istanbul. And then on the Europe side of Istanbul, there's like a little kind of spur that comes off of the Bosphorus. And that's the Golden Horn. Hmm. Yeah. Istanbul is a place I'd like to go to. It's a really cool city. Uh, We get Daily Double number two at clue number 20 in the Dangerous Colors category at the $800 level. Heather finds it. Wagers $2,000 of her $10,600. At that point, Cheyenne has really made a big push up to $10,000, and Sarah is at $8,800. Heather gets this clue. Copper sulfate helped produce shields this color 
which gave some Victorians arsenic poisoning from wallpaper. And the correct response there, which she gets, is what is green? I, yeah. I sort of, I was, I thought green, although I was also thinking of that quiz question from my quiz a couple weeks ago about uh, horseshoe crabs having uh-huh. copper that gives them blue blood. But I also, I just was not, I was overthinking it a tad and was not sure if it should be one of the, you know, sort of six primary or secondary colors or if we were looking for sort of a more obscure color word right but really just it's like oh there's copper that turns green yeah (laughs) right going toward the end of the round heather has the lead till nearly the end but sarah makes a makes a push in the last few questions and she finds daily double number three and it's Mm -hmm. in the wrap it up category at the $1,600 level, and she wagers 4000 on it. She has taken the lead from Heather at this point, but not by much, so she's making a big bet to try and extend that. And the clue is, this four-letter seaweed that wraps up sushi is actually a type of red algae. And she guesses what is nori, mm-hmm. which is correct. Yeah. Could we backtrack for a second to question sure. 26? So uh, in the wrap it up category at 400, there was there was sort of a, a, a rebound. I had mixed feelings about this. The, the clue is at Subway, the signature wraps come wrapped in one of these. And Heather rang in and said, what is a paper? <laughs> that is true, though. Which I think she should have been ruled correct. Like they do come wrapped in paper. <laughs> Underneath yeah. the paper, you'll find a tortilla, but it, they're wrapped yeah. in both. And then they wrap it in a plastic bag. So any of those are right. The whole thing is wrapped in a store. So, um, uh, I mean, arguably, the the wrap includes the tortilla. And and maybe, you know, like, uh, I I don't know. I, I am hesitant to say that it that the wrap comes wrapped in a tortilla because, like, the, the tortilla is part of the wrap. I don't know. Anyway, then Cheyenne yeah. rang in with what is a, a flour tortilla. And they were looking for tortilla. So flour tortilla is accepted. But I don't think it made a difference in the outcome of the game. But, you no. know, I'm pretty sure it does come wrapped in paper. I think they should have taken it. Yeah. And you know what? There's a principle of the thing. It is correct. Yeah. And just because the writers weren't looking for it doesn't mean it's not correct i mean normally they're good on that kind of thing yeah so that's anyway that's my that's my uh issue today okay so at the end of double jeopardy heather has thirteen thousand four hundred. sarah has taken the lead with twenty thousand, and cheyenne has eleven thousand two hundred. and they get the category poets and the clue a dartmouth dropout he received two honorary degrees from dartmouth in 1933 and 1955 did you get this one, Kyle? No, because poets are awful, and I hate poets. <laughs> and I forgot that Robert Frost was a person. If if his name had crossed my mind at all, I'd have been like, oh yeah, he's like the only one of that time period and place that makes sense. I think of Robert Frost as associated with New Hampshire. I have not fact-checked myself on that, but I, I'm pretty sure, pretty sure that's uh, correct. So I, I thought of it. Anyway, uh, Cheyenne has wagered 7,500 and guesses who is Whitman. Not a bad guess. Heather has wagered 2,199 with who is Thoreau. 
But Sarah has, who is Robert Frost, with a $6,801 wager, which takes her up to 26801 And she is our champion. There's been some some Twitter buzz, there's some positive, some negative. I am entirely in favor. Um, you could see Sarah throughout her games, I think. Like, sort of... it. I could, you could tell sometimes she was nervous that she had things that she did to sort of shake off the nerves. She brought kind of like a physicality. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's one. That is a way to put it. She she brought a physicality to the show. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, she, was... <laughs> she was she was very animated. Like you could you could absolutely tell how she was feeling. Yeah, that's the whole time. Yes, yes, you could. So, but there were there were moments where I saw thought I saw her, you know, sort of stretching out or like trying to do like deep breath or like different Mm -hmm. things like that and i sort of that struck a chord for me i think yeah Um, i liked watching her yeah so on tuesday we get uh, the contestants greg bacon an acoustical consultant from arlington virginia adela irizari an english professor from lake worth florida and sarah frontiera a graduate student from santa monica california returning with one day cash winnings of twenty six thousand eight hundred one dollars and the categories for the Jeopardy round are Off to the Landmark, Newer Neko Candy Hearts, Psy Paris, Biopic Subjects, Military Abbreviations, and Parts of Speech Defined. Yeah. We can talk about that Parts of Speech category right now. It, uh, it crushed them. Yeah. <laughs> they, they did they did not do great in that category. Ooh yeah. Ooh yikes. Okay, yeah. No, they got they got the two hundred and four hundred dollar mm-hmm. clues. But the six hundred dollar clue, uh Sarah and Adela both rang in and gave incorrect responses and it was a triple stumper. The eight hundred dollar clue, Sarah rang in and gave an incorrect response, and it was a triple stumper. The thousand dollar clue, Sarah rang in and gave an incorrect response, and it was a triple stumper. So that category did not did not treat them kindly. Yes. I got a few of those triple stumpers. I did miss the $800 one. The clue was they typically express some relation of place, time, manner. And for some reason, I thought prepositions. I think hmm. I think maybe I saw a relation. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. On on the $600 clue, Adela had rang in and, and guessed what is an adverb. Um, which mm-hmm. was incorrect in that one they were looking for interjection so adverb was on my mind so i was able to get that mm-hmm. um, for the 800 you know i saw plenty of people talking about thinking back to schoolhouse rock for that category <laughs> yes which you know what those songs still come to mind yes when these kinds of things come up so <laughs> they did they did works. get the conjunctions clue so. they did get conjunction junction yeah. but they did not get the busy prepositions mm. We got the Daily Double very early in the round. The third pick in the Cypuri category at the $400 level. Greg found it, and at that point he had 200 so he wagered um, 1000 which is the maximum if you have less than that. The clue was, the big rock that caused mass extinction 65 million years ago has the alliterative name, the Alvarez This. Um, and he correctly responded, Asteroid. I had a deep dive request before this episode aired. Um, my husband said, oh, sometime when they do a clue about the Rock of Gibraltar, you guys should do that. And there it was. Oh. Yeah, there it was at the $600 level and off to the landmark. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
Nearly 1,400 feet of limestone awaits you when you enjoy this territory seen here. Um, and they had an image. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have been to Gibraltar. Oh. It's kind of cool. It was strange. We were on a trip to France and Spain. Like, it was a school trip. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had landed in the south of Spain, and we'd spent a couple days there. And then we go to Gibraltar, and everyone is driving on the other side of the road and speaking mm. English. And it's it was it was very strange. I I didn't think that it would have like that it would be noticeable like that. But you know our very Spanish does not really speak English bus driver drops us off at the border, and then everyone's speaking with British accents. It's mm-hmm. like what is happening right now? Yeah. Uh, but it was pretty cool. And the uh, the apes, they have absolutely no fear of humans. Mm, yeah. Anyway, yeah, I'm not talking about Gibraltar. I'll th- I'll throw that out there right now. Okay, so noted. (laughs) Next time it comes up, maybe I'll do it. Sure. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Greg is in the lead. He's at 4,400. Sarah is at 1,400. And Adela is at 600. So she will pick first from the categories 2020 Anniversaries, Just a Sample, Russian Art and Culture, Mary colon me, Shakespeare by Night, and antonym, but with the first A in quotation marks. I enjoyed the Russian art and culture category. Some people in my family claim Russian ancestry. Others say, no, we're just Eastern European. Mm -hmm. Either way, either way, I've always enjoyed uh, Russian history and and that kind of thing. I did not do terribly well in it, though. I only got three of the five. Mm. But you know I got the $2,000 clue. Yeah, I... In this Stravinsky ballet, the title character gives Prince Ivan a magical feather after he captures and releases her. Greg rang in and incorrectly guessed what is Swan Lake. Not a terrible guess if you just... If the only thing you know about it is that it is a Russian ballet. But uh, that's Tchaikovsky, not Stravinsky. Mm -hmm. Um, But Sarah rings in and correctly identifies the Firebird, which has some of my favorite music. had a good Shakespeare category. Yeah, they had a triple stumper at the 2000. Which <laughs> I realize they haven't had the benefit of watching the uh, the goat tournament at the time that this was taped. Uh, it was ironic, though, yeah. It, it was kind of ironic. The, the clue is, Marcellus asks this friend of Hamlet, quote, to watch the minutes of this night, that if again this apparition come, he may speak to it. And of course, the friend of Hamlet is... Horatio. Mm-hmm. Yes. James Holtzauer's incorrect guess from the last night of the GOAT tournament. I feel like the the Mary Leakey clue was... I got it, but it felt obscure for the $400 level. Um, disclosing the past is the autobiography of this Mary who dug up some very old skulls. Yeah. Daily Double 2 came at pick number 26 so another another late one in the round uh it's in the 2020 anniversaries category at the 1200 dollars level sarah finds it and wagers 4600 uh at this point she has been on a bit of a roll she's built up quite a quite a lead uh and so she's looking to extend that 
The clue is, in 2020, this composer's birth city of Bonn and surrounding areas are celebrating his 250th birthday all year long. And Sarah has no idea, but she slowly guesses who is Beethoven, uh, which is correct. Beethoven in Bonn, city of Bonn, that should be a, a Pavlov, basically. Mm-hmm. Composer from Bonn is Beethoven. And also... 250 years ago would be uh, 1770, which, if you know a little bit more about Beethoven, puts it right. Obviously, that's when he was born. But also, even if you're not sure of his birth year, puts it in the right time period for him to be writing, you know, right about the turn of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. So, and a little bit about that, too. There's a uh, like a, a sort of movement in the uh, classical music world mostly among younger people and composers to boycott Beethoven for the entire year of 2020. Hmm. Um, I've read some articles about people arguing that no one should play his music for an entire year and see what happens because he, they claim he, his music has a stranglehold on the classical world and uh, we need to make room for, for new music and, and, perhaps let go of some older ideals and that sort of thing hmm. and i'm not gonna i'm not gonna you know pontificate on where i stand on that but just a little interesting thing right now that's interesting yeah the final daily double comes at clue number 29 in the antonym category at the 1600 dollars level greg finds it and makes it a true daily double at clue number 29 that is absolutely the right call he has 6400 Sarah at the time has 19,200. So to, and there's, after he completes this daily double, there's going to be one $2,000 clue on the board. Uh-huh. So to, uh, to get back into contention, he needs almost 10,000. That means he's going to need to wager at least 3,000. There's no real point in him doing less than a true daily double. I would argue it may be, Maybe there's a case to be made for wagering almost everything in order to get to participate in Final Jeopardy. You know, I uh, think you could go either way on that. And in any case, he gets the clue of bedridden or unable to walk. Um, And all these clues have started with, they're the antonym of whatever the clue is, 10 letters. And he comes up with ambulatory. And so he gets up to 12,800. And uh, there's one clue left on the board. Sarah scoops it up. It's um, it's a pretty great word. Yeah. Of relating to the period after the biblical flood. Um, so the period after the biblical flood would be post-Diluvian, I guess. Uh-huh. Um, the adjective meaning before the biblical flood is antediluvian. Yeah. I like that word. It's a great word. It's just a fun word. Yeah. There aren't a whole lot of situations where you can use it, but (laughs) it it comes up for me from time to time. Sure. Going into Final Jeopardy, we have Sarah at 21,200. Greg is trailing with 12,800. Adela is at 7,800. And the category is World Capitals. And they get the clue, sharing its name with another ancient city on the sea, 
This African capital is called Bride of the Mediterranean. Adela wagers 800 and did not manage to come up with anything. Greg has wagered 8,401. Guesses what is Tripoli, which is correct. And Sarah has a $4,401 wager, uh, cover bet. She has what is Tripoli, and then she wrote Damascus below, but crossed it out. I'm not sure what order she did those things in. And she seemed a little uncertain about whether having Damascus there but crossed out would be a problem. (laughs) It's not. It's it's clear that she left one answer sort of standing, uh, which is Tripoli. So uh, she is the champion with 25,601. That means that going into Wednesday, we have Ryan Wenstrup-Moore, an associate director of social media from Cincinnati, Ohio. Joshua Swiger, a private tour company owner from Kapolei, Hawaii. And Sarah Frontiera, a graduate student from Santa Monica, California, whose two-day cash winnings now total $52,402. And we get the Jeopardy round categories of the World Almanac 2020, State's Big Employers, Train of Thought, A Little Alliteration, which... (laughs) Gave them a really hard time in pronouncing that. And then Monroe and Doctorin. Very cute. (laughs) Um, I appreciated Joshua's Hawaiian shirts. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it made me feel like he was ready to party. Yeah. And also reminded me of my dad. (laughs) People from Hawaii really, like, wear Hawaiian shirts. and Not as, like, a kitschy, like, you know... Yeah, or, or an ironic thing. It is. It's yeah. a thing. Yep. They've really been leaning into the 2020 theme mm, Yeah. throughout this month. Do you have commentary about player pianos? I mean, player pianos aren't really a thing anymore. Yeah. <laughs> we, have com- we have computers. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but uh, player pianos are interesting. Um, the $1,000 clue in a little alliteration. Now I can't do it. Was a... Uh, in 1922 London, over 50 companies were making this mechanical and musical wonder with no fingers on the keys. And those are player pianos, which is where you put a what's called a piano roll, and it's a it's a sheet of paper with holes punched into it in, in various patterns. And as it goes through, those holes like catch on mechanisms inside the piano, which then make the piano push certain keys and the hammers fall. So it can play music without a player if you've never heard of the player piano. Mm-hmm. I have noticed, and I, I, don't, I don't know if this is something that I just happen to be noticing now and they've always done it, or if it's happening more often, I've noticed a lot of clues asking for cities, mm. um, particularly capital cities, when they, and in the clue, they designate that it is the capital city of a state, and they also give the rest of the clue about it. So like in the Monroe category at the $600 level, the clue is Lieutenant Monroe crossed the Delaware with Washington to fight in the battle of this now New Jersey capital and got a near fatal wound. So you don't need to actually know anything about the Revolutionary War. You just need to know the capital of New Jersey. The capital of New Jersey. But even the clue crossed the Delaware with Washington, I think a Jeopardy contestant should know that that's the Battle of Trenton. Yeah. 
for me it's it's giving too much information for it to be a competitive clue and i've yeah. noticed that in i noticed that in a couple of clues this week that they're supplying like several major routes to the correct response you know I, I appreciate about Jeopardy that there's often sort of a, you know, a straightforward clue and then like kind of a sly, like, you know, pun or like other like reference that lets you that lets you get it, even if you don't actually know the fact. Yeah. Um, but this is like, yeah, I, I, I hear you on that. Um, they're, they're giving a, they're giving a lot of facts. Yeah. We get the Daily Double in the Train of Thought category at the $600 level at the 17th clue. Joshua finds it and wagers 2,200. The clue is, in 1977, after decades of dwindling ridership, this luxury train was discontinued. Or was it murdered? (laughs) And uh, he correctly responds, what is the Orient Express? I don't actually know that they gave enough information to get that without the sly reference like yes i was having that same thought i because i had the thought they, about the, the the monroe clue and then this you know we, we look at this one and i'm like i don't know that i would just get a luxury train that was discontinued in discontinued 1977 yeah that, maybe if they had given the two terminals which are istanbul and paris, paris. i think it's paris, paris. Yeah. yeah. Then it, that may, another another clue to make it, to narrow it down to that I think would have been would have been fine too. So so that's an instance where like the kind of winking clue is fine in my opinion because the rest of the clue doesn't designate it specifically. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, that makes sense. At the end of the Jeopardy round, Joshua is leading with seven thousand four hundred to Sarah's three thousand six hundred and Ryan's two thousand four hundred, and we get the categories in Double Jeopardy. Synopsis. Sin is spelled S-I-N. Places. Narrows it down. Um, (laughs) Colorful pop culture animals. What's your area? Lettermen. And petty rhymes. Each correct response will rhyme with the word petty. This is the round where I discovered that I have some some neurons devoted to the name of the raptor from Jurassic World. (laughs) Oh, blue. Um, yes. Yeah. Why do I know that? Why? <laughs> um, I ran I, the colorful pop culture animals category. I did too. I got both the uh, Chris. I got both triple stumpers, and it sounds like you did too. Um, Chris mm-hmm. Pratt's beta raptor from Jurassic World was named this, like the coloration on its skin. That's blue. And in a 1994 film, Alan Cumming voiced this title horse. That's Black Beauty. That was a guess for me. I'm pretty sure I've never seen Black Beauty, but I was also like, color name horse? Yeah. What else could it be? Mm-hmm. I, I'm sure that I am not the only nerd who took a bit of issue with the $1,200 clue. Greywind was the name of one of these that belonged to Rob Stark on Game of Thrones. It's a dire wolf. Yeah. Joshua responded, what is a wolf? And was ruled correct and i mean not to get really into things that are made up and be really specific about it but wolves and dire wolves are different species mm-hmm. uh, but it's too yeah. late now yep did you go back and change it yeah i i sort of wonder if he maybe he knew and went with wolf initially to see like thinking that he would get a be more specific if they really wanted dire wolf i don't know 
Yeah. But yeah, I I am with you. In this round, we start to see Sarah show her frustration mm-hmm. with not being not being able to buzz in, which I can totally relate with. I had mm-hmm. the exact same kind of just unadulterated rage in my game that I lost to Rob because I had the same experience. I went into Double Jeopardy with a pretty good lead, and then somehow I just couldn't get in first on any of the clues in the Double Jeopardy round, and it was making me so mad. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh, I was so angry with every passing clue that I didn't get in on. No one can possibly know your pain, Kyle. I know, I know. Except... Except, Except for the everybody, 14 people you defeated. Yes. I know. And then and then as soon as we like as soon as the round ended and we like went to commercial break, that all dissipated and I was like, Alright, that's the game. That's yeah. how it goes. And yeah. I realized that that is everybody else's experience too. So Ooh, but in the moment I remember I remember feeling like that 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 flush of anger. Like not directed at anybody, just like, oh, why can't I get in? Yeah. I'm able to get in. I know I'm able to get in. I've I love been doing when contestants glare at their buzzers. Yeah, like it's. What are you doing? <laughs> I didn't yeah. do anything to you. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they had a they had a triple stumper about the virgin suicides too. Um, uh, in the in the synopsis category. In a Jeffrey Eugenides novel, each of the lovely Lisbon sisters commits this, which a priest in the book calls a mortal sin. Uh, they had a triple stumper. It was, uh, what is suicide? Book recommendations with Emily. Hey, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. Book not recommendations from Kyle. I tried so hard to read the picture of Dorian Gray, which is the $1,600 clue. I just couldn't do it. Huh. I mean, it didn't maybe, do a whole lot for it. me, but I didn't think it was terrible. I don't know. Maybe I need to give it another shot. I I, I really disliked his writing style. Mm. You know, a book I wanted to throw out the window is The Scarlet Letter. I've never actually read it. Ah, it's about the great and terrible suffering of being a priest who's impregnated a woman who's being publicly humiliated and not being able to disclose it because you wouldn't want to be humiliated yourself. That must be really hard for him. It, yes, no one no one can know his pain. Um <laughs> I, uh, I, I've, I have oversimplified it, but I wanted to throw it out the window a lot. Anyway, we get daily double number two at clue number 14 in the what's your area category, $1,600 level. And the clue is this central part of a Christian church is where the worshipers sit. The altar is for the clergy. And Sarah with a $2,000 wager correctly responds, what is the nave and that's correct uh that puts her up into the lead a little bit over joshua he's he's had pretty firm command of the buzzer uh throughout the game at that point but she's a little bit in the lead but that Mm -hmm. pretty quickly goes away she kind of plateaus ryan just really can't get in uh edgewise and for the rest of the round joshua just kind of takes off and he finds daily double number three at clue number 23 in the places category at the $1,600 level. Uh, and like I said, he's taking a lead here, but he wagers 6,000, making trying to make a big move. And the clue is the 33 mile Sikan undersea tunnel links these two major islands that both begin with the same letter. And he correctly identifies what are Honshu and Hokkaido, which are the 
two, I believe, largest islands of the four main islands of Japan. Yeah, it's a good get. I remembered Honshu, but I could not pull Hokkaido in time. Uh, that's another another thing that I studied for the tournament. Mm-hmm. I was like, I should know Japan. Just a yeah. little bit. Uh, so Joshua gets it right, bumps him up even farther, and he gets a few more before the end of the round. Uh, so going into Final Jeopardy, he is up to 27,400, but it's not a lockout. Sarah has been fighting the whole time, so she's in at 16 thousand which is not a bad score at all Mm -hmm. going into final jeopardy uh and ryan is at 4400 we get the category 21st century oscar winners and i don't know if something happened like off camera but when that category was revealed alex gave the contestants this really long and like intense look before turning to the camera and you know saying we'll be right back It, it, it was weird i don't know what that was but I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, Sarah had just done sort of a whole like double mm-hmm. jeopardy. Like the, I don't know. I thought I thought I saw her like trying to like get the like she flipped her hair and she like. That's right. <laughs> yeah, she like she she like tossed her hair back and like shook her head and like something with it her out like and... rubbing her t- her arms and like a deep breath and like a yeah. Like... <laughs> she was she was very I, yeah. clearly like getting um, herself psyched. She I was thought ready. he was responding to that, but maybe not. Yeah, that could have been it. Yeah, yeah, um, that's that's fair. Yeah, she's very anim- so much more animated than than most Jeopardy contestants. Yeah. Um, so we get the clue. This man won Best Supporting Actor twice, both for films that won Best Picture. So Ryan uh, wagered four hundred, and she wrote, "Who is Colin Moore?" And uh, Alex was kind of trying to figure out who that was, and Ryan says, "It's my husband. It's not him." Um, <laughs> And Alex responds, frankly, I'm surprised it's not your husband, which I don't know what that means, but uh, whatever. It's wrong. So she loses 400. Sarah responds uh, with who is Gosling, which is incorrect. So she loses 6,801. And Joshua responds, who is Hanks, which is also incorrect. And he loses 11,000. The correct response is Mahershala Ali, which he came to mind for me. He was like the second person to pop into my mind. And I purposely said, no, because there's no way he would be the supporting actor in Green Book. Right. <laughs> but of course he was labeled that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway. Yes. Um, that's, ha- yeah. Hashtag Oscars so white. I guess that's not exactly I... an Oscars so white, but... I mean, he did um, win an Oscar, but... Oscar's so systemic racism. Um, yeah, should yeah. be, yeah. Because he, he popped into my mind, and I was like, no, he won lead actor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So I went on, I just went on to other people, and di- I didn't come up with a response, because I... Anyway, uh, but that means Joshua wins mm-hmm. with 16,400. So going into Thursday, we get the contestants David Haney, an accounting manager from Seattle, Washington. Michelle Paul, a managing director from Newark, Delaware, and Joshua Swiger, a private tour company owner from Kapolei, Hawaii, whose one-day cash winnings total 16400 And we get the Jeopardy round categories, Boots, The World of the 1800s, Stop It, Websites, Author Last Name in Common, and big play in the team's Super Bowl win 
You have to name the winning team. The writers just love throwing football categories at, at Jeopardy contestants. It's very funny. It's very funny material. It, it um. is good television. <laughs> <laughs> and the contestants were like, nope, we're going to yep. play in slow motion. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, I, don't, I don't think anyone intended to play in slow motion. But, I uh, think Joshua did by the time they got there. I think he was pretty yeah. clearly taking his time. Anyway. I mean, if there's a category where you're like, there's no chance I'm going to know it. And they've narrowed down the category enough that, like, you know that you're not going to be able to use, like, other knowledge to respond, right? Like, they're not going to ask you, you know, like, what city a team is based in. Right. Um, they're going to describe a football play with the name of a player. Yeah, and you have to know it. Yeah. But they also give you the year, which, again, you'd still have to, like, know it, but... Right. Spoiler, we only got two of those clues revealed before mm-hmm. the end of the round. Yes. The boots category seemed to uh, seemed to give them some trouble. They only got two of the five. Oh. Um, which, I mean, I also... The two that they got were the two that I got. They're pretty rough. Uh, and we did find the Daily Double in that category at the $400 level. Michelle uncovers it and wagers $2,000. Uh, and the clue is Chuka boots are said to get their name from a period in this sport. She, she takes a while and then guesses, what is soccer? Uh, and the correct response is polo. Polo, Alex says, as though anybody knows anything about polo in the whole world. Right. But it's from polo. So now we have that to connect to, you know, the vast amount of knowledge we have with that, you know, very common sport. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can't say I know a whole lot about polo. I guess lacrosse. Something about Chucka looked like it could come from a Native American language. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I guess hockey, because it's the only sport I know that has periods. Mm. But that would be pretty wild for Boots designed like hockey boots like hockey skates <laughs> just for casual wear you know yeah just, or to the club like i don't know why, why would you wear your hockey boots i mean that for that being said i have seen some of the heels that people wear and i feel like that would be equally difficult to walk on as if you yeah. were just walking on skates maybe even more difficult but it's fair Michelle got out to a pretty good lead for a, you know, a reasonable lead for a portion of the Jeopardy round. Um, Joshua was able to close it up. David was kind of up and down, but mostly, mostly in third place. And at the end of the Jeopardy round, we have Michelle in the lead at 4,600. Joshua is at 4,200. David is at 1,400. And we get the categories reboots. Capital Islands, that's politics, why is the only vowel, medical procedures, and who speaketh in the Bible? How'd you do in that category? Which you know I loved. Oh, <laughs> I, I, I swept it. I thought that some of the higher value clues were relatively easy compared to some of the lower value ones. So we had um, at the $400 level, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. That's uh, Pontius Pilate. Washing his hands. Washing his hands. Yeah. Of the responsibility for the death of Jesus. Although it's complicated. 
this probably isn't the time or the place for that. Um, uh, <laughs> that's a, that's a class it, right there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, he is the person who's going to, you know, like crush the city if any sort of subversive uprising were to happen. And mm-hmm. so he gets to sort of disavow responsibility, but people are still, you know, like the, he gets to sort of delegate authority for making sure there are no uprisings to the to the people whose whose homes and and families will be destroyed anyway we had a quote from solomon divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other i was trying to explain division with a remainder to my six-year-old the other day and um asked him how he would go about dealing with a situation where there were five puppies (laughs) and two (laughs) and two families wanting puppies (laughs) Uh, and then I sort of reminded myself of Solomon. You could give two and a uh, half to each. <laughs> uh, yeah, he, he was he was able to to see the sort of gross humor <laughs> in like, the idea of handing someone two and a half puppies. Yeah, we had we had a couple of them out of order at the sixteen hundred level. Uh, Let me die with the Philistines. Joshua rang in and said, "Who is Saul?" wonder if he was thinking that there are places where where Paul refers to himself as having been a, a Pharisee he might have mixed up Philistines and Pharisees or he or he could have mixed up Samson and Saul this is Samson of Samson and Delilah and then they went back up to the 1200 suddenly there shone a, from heaven a great light round about me and I fell onto the ground um, that's where we should have gotten Paul or Saul that's yeah, but Joshua was gun shy there. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't ring in and try again. Yeah, at the two thousand dollar level, we got the daily double. Joshua found it. It's the ninth clue. He bets it all three three thousand, and he gets the clue. Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. Um, and correctly responds, "Who is Gabriel?" To me, that's one of the easiest of the bunch. Yeah, I I thought so too. I thought for me, let me die with the Philistines. I did not get that one. I thought that was by far the hardest. Yeah. Yeah, I I would agree with that. Then again, if you don't know the Bible, all of these would be hard, right? It's true. (laughs) Yes. I was very surprised that they didn't get syzygy into the why is the only foul category. I like, it came up and I was like, all right, well, the $2,000 response is syzygy. And... (laughs) It was not. It was not. (laughs) Yeah. I guess, I mean, if Jeopardy is that predictable, then it's not going to function well as a game. So I'm sort of glad it wasn't. Yeah. So we get the third Daily Double in the Medical Procedures category at the $2,000 level. It's uh, pick number 21, so it's later on in the game. And Joshua finds it. He is slightly in the lead here over Michelle. And he wagers 5,000. So he, he seems okay making big bets, especially late in the game, to try and sort of uh, give himself some breathing room. And the clue is a keratoplasty is another name for one of these eye part transplants. And he immediately responds, what is cornea? Which is correct. So he, mm-hmm. he bumps himself pretty far up with only eight, nine clues left in the in the round. Yeah. We had a good moment in reboots um, at the $1,200 level. The clue was Jay Hernandez wears Hawaiian shirts as the title PI on the CBS reboot. David rang in and guessed what is Hawaii Five O. That's not correct. Joshua was very pleased to get this clue while wearing his Hawaiian shirt. 
mm-hmm. and correctly responded, what is Magnum PI? Yeah. That's the second time Magnum PI came up for me in the last two days. Hmm. I don't watch the new show, so it is yeah. strange that that would come up. I did, however, watch every episode of the original show in, like, middle school and early high school. Hmm. For some reason, my mom, it, it was on reruns on some network. They did the whole series and my mom like taped all of them. And I, that was just one thing that I watched with her was Magnum P.I. So huh. that that occupies space in my brain now. <laughs> yeah, I think I've seen zero episodes of Magnum P.I. You know, if you've seen one, you kind of seen them all. Maybe I should see one. Give it a few. You know, you got to get to know Higgins. Yeah. You got to get to know Rick. Mm-hmm. You got to get to... N- not know Robin Masters, because we never meet Robin Masters. Anyway, moving on. Going into Final Jeopardy, Joshua is in a substantial lead with 21,000. Michelle is in second place with 13,400, and David is trailing with 4,200. And the category is advertising and music. The clue is, in 2008, 34 years after it made Billboard's top 10, this song title was used by a southern state in a tourism campaign. I think this might be a don't overthink it situation. Yep. Um, David has wagered 35.77 and correctly responds, what is Sweet Home Alabama? He has wagered enough to land him at $7,777, so that's fun. Oh, lucky sevens. Michelle has a $4,500 wager. She was trying to stay above David no matter what, Yeah, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. She also correctly responds, what is Sweet Home Alabama? Joshua had what is Georgia, and then he crossed out Georgia, and then put Carolina on my mind. I think he's thinking of Georgia on my mind, or Carolina in my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's a there's a James Taylor song, Carolina in my mind. There's a song, Georgia on my mind. Sweet Home Alabama came came right to mind for me. Maybe it just didn't for Joshua. Yeah. Um, once I saw his two guesses, I was like, oh, I guess there are actually a number of southern states that you could that you mm-hmm. could think of. Although maybe thinking about 1974 should help. Yeah, which really, I mean, for Georgia on my mind, it's really not that far off. Because the Ray Charles recording, I think, was in the 60s. Oh, uh, yeah. September 1960. Yes, you're right. Yeah, so it's, I mean, if you're not sure, it's not that far off. But Yeah. But it is wrong. <laughs> yeah. So that drops him down. He finishes with 13,500. Michelle is our winner with 17,900. So she will return on Friday. That's right. The 7777 thing, for all my my video game nerds, in Final Fantasy VII, one of the greatest games ever made, if you get your character's hit points, like in in a battle, if you get their hit points to go to 7777, then Mm -hmm. it is like a, it's an Easter egg in the game where that character then, Everything lights up and they immediately uh, start dealing 7,777 damage to every enemy there is until the battle is over. And I think that's what he was going for. Maybe he was hoping that if he got 7777, he'd be able to knock out the other two players and be the winner. Who knows? Who knows? 
I like I like that, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't know if anybody's ever done it before, so it's worth a shot. <clears throat> anyway, going into Friday, we have Audrey Coe, a professional taste tester from Oakland, California, which, like, what? Yeah. You can be a professional taste tester? Matthew Leonard, a client services coordinator from New Haven, Connecticut. And Michelle Paul, a managing director from Newark, Delaware, whose one-day cash winnings total 17900 And Alex made a big deal of saying Newark when he talked to her this day. So mm-hmm. I also made a big deal of saying Newark. And we get the worst... I uh, don't want to, I shouldn't be super critical, <laughs> but we get, we get the strangest set of category names. It was a weird board. Yeah. So the first category is just symbols, the word symbols. Next category is a percentage sign. Next category is an at sign. Next category is an ampersand. Next category is an asterisk, which Alex explains is footnotes. And then the last category is a greater than sign. And this threw the contestants off so hard. And I'm sure I would have also been thrown off too. Because you're looking for... When you're on stage, you're just looking at the name of the category. And you you just say it. And then you say the dollar amount. And so if I'm looking at an asterisk, I have to remember that it's called footnotes. Yeah. What? Yeah. Like, wh- why? <laughs> was disorienting i also i like if you're going to commit to this extremely weird board i feel like there's a missed opportunity here to have a whole like uh category about like twitter handles yeah and while i'm at it i think the greater than category should have been math yeah instead of like award winners yeah which i mean i guess that's okay yeah like they had these very weird categories and then hit a completely normal board underneath them yeah and the at category i don't understand how it's locations yeah it's locations like so at at what why (laughs) i the whole time i i like wasn't trying to come up with correct responses because i was trying to figure out how the category name at really fits the clue other than it's just like oh it's a place you could be at yeah Uh, (laughs) it frustrated me and i i felt for the contestants Mm -hmm. Um, i hear you yeah now in my head i'm writing clues about celebrities Twitter handles. Um. <laughs> <laughs> you hear that, Jeopardy writers? Hit her up if you need those. Yeah. So yeah, all of the con- they they just seem thrown off by it, which I don't blame them for. Yeah. Uh, but but they I mean they do okay. They mm-hmm. in the percentage category at the eight hundred dollar level. Uh, it the clue is in the dystopian Netflix show Three Percent. Kids in the slums of this largest Brazilian city are competing to join an offshore paradise. Uh, Audrey rang in and guessed what is Rio de Janeiro, but that's incorrect. Uh, And then it was a triple stumper. Something you got to know for Brazil. You know, you have Rio de Janeiro, which is kind of like the best known city, but it's not the capital anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. Brasilia is the capital. Right. Which is a, a, you know, fairly recent thing and in the terms of like you know human history and then the other city the other like major big city and actually the largest city is sao paulo Mm -hmm. and those are just you just need to remember those for brazil yeah in the at category 
I thought there was a fun hint hidden in the $800 clue. A small trading town until the 19th century, this city on the Huangpu River now has a population of 20 plus million. Kidnapped sailors aside. So to, to Shanghai is the, uh, the, the reference there. Shanghai yeah. is the correct response. Uh, we get the Daily Double at the 14th pick in the at category at the $600 level. Matthew finds it and wagers 2,800. That's a true daily double. He gets the clue. This waterway extends 51 miles from Limon Bay to a second bay whose name would kind of give it away. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He struggled with it for a minute and eventually said, what is the Bay of Portugal? Um, That's the Panama Canal. Mm -hmm. Yep. So he drops back down to zero. Yeah. I think they like, I feel like we've seen the Panama Canal a few times recently. It's one of the things that trivia people like asking about. At the end of the Jeopardy round, Michelle is leading with 4,800. Matthew has 1,600. Audrey has 3,400. And we get the much more normal double Jeopardy board. Thank Uh, goodness. (laughs) uh, The categories are species names, 14 letter words, literary festivals, Historic Please, World Transportation, and Real Life Celebrity Superheroes. And we did not get through a whole lot of clues um, in either board. In Single Jeopardy, there were four $200 clues left unrevealed. In Double Jeopardy, at the, when the, when they ran out of time, there were six clues Mm -hmm. that were, that were still not revealed on the board. Yeah. Man, that's a lot. So they they struggled some. Yeah, this game there there were a lot of incorrect responses, you know, triple stumpers and things like that, which which is a shame. That's it's not fun to to see that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, I really enjoyed Audrey. I thought she was mm-hmm. a fun contestant to watch. Yeah, on the show, but she took a couple of bad guesses at the end of the round. Yeah. Uh, so. Speaking of that, um, Daily Double number two came at pick number eight in the round. It's in the historic please category uh, at the $1,200 level. So Audrey has 5800 and she wagers 4000 of it. The clue is Chief Joseph met Teddy Roosevelt and pleaded with him to allow this tribe to return to its ancestral home. And Audrey, <laughs> Audrey says, can I change my wager? <laughs> <laughs> it's just so unexpected you know to like yeah, yeah. <laughs> um alex tells her no uh and asks for a response and she just runs out of time and alex tells her who are the nez purse and audrey says i wouldn't have known that anyways yeah <laughs> which felt bad for her yeah <laughs> she's um she's on twitter this is uh we're recording on friday so her game has uh just aired and she's she's on twitter uh saying that that, that she was joking she she understands how daily doubles work right you know i uh i wasn't sure when i was watching it if she just has like a very like wry sense of humor and was deadpanning mm-hmm. um or or if she like legitimately had somehow not known or forgotten but She's trying to clarify. Uh, to there, there are a fair number of haters out there. Um, what? And, uh, <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. So yes, she uh, has clarified that that she she intended it as a joke. Yeah, I thought it was hilarious. I enjoyed it was, that yeah. so much. 
It was yes. it was funny. It was like a little like a little like cringy funny like, but I don't know. I felt for her. Yeah, and yeah, <laughs> I, I, I enjoyed it. I got a kick yeah. out of it. Yeah, we had a we had a number of triple stumpers, a couple of which Audrey rang in and gave an incorrect response, and then no one else rang in. So like the uh, world transportation category, the twelve hundred dollar clue. It is, this U.S. interstate passes through eight states on its 2,400-plus-mile journey from Santa Monica to Jacksonville. Audrey rang in and guessed what is Route 66, uh, but the correct response is I-10. So if you never learned how the interstates are numbered, even numbers go east-west, and odd numbers go north-south. So the even numbers increase from the southernmost to the northernmost, so I-10 is down south I-90 is up north, mm. and, and continuing on in that way. Uh, and then the odd numbers increase from west to east. So I-5 is in California, is, is on the, the west coast, and I-95, what you would find to the east. Yeah. 95 runs not far from us. Yeah. That's helpful. I, I, knew there was a, I knew there was a scheme, but I had not sort of successfully grasped it. Yeah. And then and those are the major like the yeah. the tens and the fives, those are the major ones. And then you have like smaller interstates that connect, you know, a few states and, and they're numbered kind of like by what other interstate they're near, so it gets a little wonky, but essentially like remember that the lower numbers are south and west. And if mm-hmm. it's if it's odd it goes north south. If it goes if it's even it goes east west. Yeah. I wonder if, like, if that daily double interaction sort of threw Michelle and Matthew off a little bit. Maybe. Like, it's so unexpected. I could imagine it being sort of difficult to kind of stay focused on your own game afterwards. Uh, We get daily double number three at the 17th clue. In the species names category at the $1,600 level. Michelle finds it and wagers 2,200 of her 7,200. She's in a lock position at this point and is not risking it uh, with that wager. Matthew still has 1,200 at that point and Audrey has 600. She gets the clue Pandalus borealis, the deepwater prawn, is also known as this directional shrimp. And she guesses what is north. And Alex is, I think, sort of looking over toward the judges' table to get a ruling on whether they're going to accept just the word north. Um, so she adds the syllable urn. Urn. <laughs> uh, and uh, at that point, he accepts it. Yes, north or n- northern or north. Shrimp. Yes. I thought of the Aurora Borealis, the northern lights, um, mm-hmm. as kind yeah. of my, my reference point. I think that's yeah. the only the, the reference point you can have unless you are someone who is really into shrimp, you know. Yeah, or or like boreal forests. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, I felt I felt bad for Audrey um, at the sixteen hundred dollar clue of literary festivals. Louisville's Gonzo Fest is not about Muppets; it celebrates the writing of this native son. And she guessed who is right. She, I think, has. Uh, Richard Wright as a Pavlov for Native Son. Mm. Um, he's oh. the writer of the novel Native Son. I saw exactly where she was getting that from. Yeah. Um, 
with a little more context, I think you would know it doesn't fit mm-hmm. with Louisville. But I could see how she would think that she'd sort of found the hidden hint. Right. The correct answer there is Hunter Thompson. And I think he just is a native son of Louisville. I yeah. don't think they were trying to hint at anything with that wording. Or if they were, I, I don't know it. Yep. And that kind of... That's that's a tough break for her. She also has a tough break in the historic please category at 1600. Lysan, son of this Trojan king, begs Achilles, be merciful and spare me. Achilles kills him. She rings in with who is Pyram. So she reversed the R and the I in, in King Priam or Priam. So she lost another 16 there on a, on like a thing she knows, but she didn't say correctly. Yeah. You know. That's rough. That brings us, like, that kind of continues to the end of the Double Jeopardy round. Michelle has a lot game at 10,200. Matthew is in second at 3,200, and Audrey's in the red, negative 2,600, so she does not get to play mm-hmm. Final Jeopardy. Uh, and we get the category French Towns, and the clue says, Legend says local farm wife Marie Harrell and a priest from Brie created the famous product of this Normandy village. Matthew <laughs> bets it all, because why not? You're guaranteed mm-hmm. second place no matter what. And he throws up his hands and guesses, what is cheese? Ooh, I would go I, I would go to cheese, France. But that is not correct, uh, shockingly. And Michelle wagered 2022 and correctly identified what is camembert. So she's up to 12,222. So another fun number mm-hmm. at the end of Final Jeopardy. Um, she was astounded that camembert was correct. Yeah, she was like, what? Which... Hey, you know, you took a guess, and that's kind of what the clues are for. I I know it said brie, and I was like, I do not know enough about cheese. Now, I know you are a, a, a connoisseur of cheese, so I I imagine you got it. Did you get it? I, I overthought it, and I started mm. trying to... For, I don't know why I started thinking about champagne, uh. but I did, and... Um, and then I felt like a real dunce. Um, well, yeah, I didn't. I didn't go to Camembert. You know, when he when they revealed it, and Alex was like, "Yeah, when you think of Brie, you often think of Camembert." And I'm like, "Well, maybe you do." Uh, yeah, I, the no, only... I, I do. Like Camembert popped into my head, and then I discarded it, and for whatever reason, was like, "Oh, they wouldn't be looking for another cheese. They already said Brie." Right. That's um, kind of what threw me off. I was like, "So Brie is that pointing to cheese, or is it not?" Because you already said he's from Brie, so the answer isn't Brie. So I just ended up thinking Chantilly. Mm. But obviously that was wrong. But anyway, Michelle wins. <laughs> uh, so now she's a two-day champ, and she will be coming back on Monday. Yes. So what do you think, Emily? What, what do you think do I, I'm doing? What do I think? We know it's not Gibraltar. So... Right. So now you have you, ruled out one, one. of the approximately <laughs> 300 <laughs> options, yeah. Yeah. Um, we're not talking about the Burj Khalifa, are we? No, it did cross my mind um, mm. to take a look at that, but no, we're not yeah. looking at the Burj Khalifa. Anything from Russian art and culture? Nope. Okay. Could it be William Tecumseh Sherman? It is not. 
Okay. All right. I think that's three guesses. I should sure. probably stop at this point. No, All fine. right. What what are we doing? We are, and I I'm realizing now that this is now kind of two movie uh, deep dives in a row, or at least movie adjacent deep dives in a row. But that's we're fine. At... We sort of go on jags with things, but yeah. but what are we doing? <laughs> we're on the Monday game in the inspiring women category. We're looking at the thousand dollar clue. This glamorous Vienna-born actress invented a device that contributed to the development of GPS and Wi-Fi, and that is Hedy Lamarr. Ooh. So we're we're learning a little bit about Hedy Lamarr. Okay. I don't know anything about Hedy Lamarr, I think. Neither did I, other than she was an actress, and, and after that clue, learned that she was also an inventor. So mm-hmm. that's why I was like, you know what? I should learn more about her figure out what's uh you know what her deal is or was because she is no longer alive all right so hedy lamar was born hedwig eva maria kiesler on november 9th 1914 she was born in vienna which was at that point in the austro-hungarian empire uh her parents were both of jewish ancestry but her mother converted to catholicism as an adult and raised hetty as a catholic though she was not formally baptized at that time so hetty lamar has jewish ancestry but she is not uh she did not like grow up following jewish traditions or anything like that i'm gonna kind of go through her life and career before i talk about her in invention so i'm going to talk about that like separately because that's really what like drew me into talking about her so she had always shown an interest in acting and was fascinated by film uh, from a young age. Uh, She won a beauty contest in Vienna at the age of 12, which uh, is, I guess, the beginning of the the sort of Western world's fascination with her beauty. Throughout her career, she was often touted as the world's most beautiful woman. Uh, And I'll talk about how that affected things later on. After the Anschluss she helped her mother get out of Austria and get her uh, over to the United States. So the Anschluss being the when Germany annexed Austria kind of at the beginning of World War II. Uh, her, her Jewish heritage, kind of important to her, obviously coming from that part of the world and how it affected her family. So she took acting classes in Vienna as a, as a teenager. And at the age of 16, she forged a permission note from her mother and got a job as a script girl at Sasha Film. She had a couple of small roles as extras or little speaking parts in 1930 and 1931. She was working uh, both in film and on stage. Uh, She had some, like I said, some smaller roles starting out, but she was still only a teenager. So, you know, it's not like she had been, she had been working in the trenches a long time trying to make her way before she got her break. This was pretty early on part of her success probably like was due to her beauty men were charmed with her rather naturally so uh she impressed a number of uh producers and and directors pretty quickly and they offered her a number of roles uh one of them was uh max reinhardt uh he put her in a play titled the weaker sex and she performed in that uh and that was in i think 1931 he was very impressed with her and he wanted to take her back to Berlin with him where he was based with his theater. But she didn't 
do that. She uh, she instead met the Russian theater producer Alexis Granovsky, and she starred in his uh, film directorial debut, The Trunks of Mr. O.F., and that was in 1931, uh, and starred Walter Abel and Peter Lorre. So not a you know low budget kind of thing. And so that Russian director soon moved to Paris, but then Hetty at this time Kiesler went to Berlin <laughs> when after she had already been invited by someone else. So she just kind of moves around following opportunities wherever she sees it. And she gets her first big taste of like international fame in 1933. At the age of 18, she starred in the film called Ecstasy. It was directed by Gustave Machati, who was a Czech film director and screenwriter. This movie, Ecstasy, it gained a lot of attention throughout Europe and the United States for its portrayal, particularly of, at this time, Hedy Kiesler having an orgasm on screen, supposedly. Mm-hmm. She did not actually. She was yeah. acting that, and it showed her face through that process. Um, so mm-hmm. it gained critical acclaim in most of Europe because critics viewed it as very artistic and you know pushing boundaries and and that kind of thing the united states did not like it Mm -hmm. a number of groups and organizations in the u.s denounced it it was banned in places like hitler's germany later on and you know the vatican obviously so it, it had mixed reviews across all people because of that it also had a number of nude shots of hedy lamar at that time keesler who she says that that was a result of being tricked by the director and producer. She she claims that she did not know that those were going to be filmed at all or put in the movie. And she says they used high-powered telephoto lenses to take those shots, which Ooh. is very totally possible. Like I don't I have we have yeah. no reason to not believe her certainly cuz ugh. So yeah, Ecstasy is about a young woman who is in who is married to uh, an older man who is entirely indifferent to her. Uh, and she escapes that loveless marriage and falls in love with a, a young man who helps her after she is she like loses her horse and she tries to get it back and and uh, she kind of gets like sort of injured and he helps her and she falls in love with him and he falls in love with her and it's passionate and but it, it dealt with sex very like candidly in for that age mm-hmm. um, so. That made her name uh, well-known, either in a good way or a bad way. She was actually pretty pretty upset about the impact that the film had. She thought that she had kind of like ruined her chances of taking, of getting other roles and, and having success because she, she felt like, oh no, you know, people are going to think I'm that person. Mm, yeah. But that was obviously not true. Like I said, a lot of critics really, uh, really enjoyed the film or, or, or said that it was, you know, high art and, and good work. So she certainly had opportunities after that. Uh, she played a number of stage roles in Vienna during this time. And uh, one of those one of those plays was called Sissy, which was about Empress Elizabeth of Austria. And so she garnered acclaim through that and also from the film and admirers began coming to her dressing room all the time trying to get backstage to try and meet her and send her things she turned you know nearly all of them away uh but one man friedrich mondel became obsessed with her and he he 
he made it his mission to like meet her and get to know her and she ended up falling for him uh, she found him charming and 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 fascinating he was also incredibly rich he was the third richest man in austria so that might have had to do with it as well her parents did not approve, probably because Mondel had ties to Benito Mussolini and Hitler and a bunch of other high-ranking Nazis. But you know what? She just went ahead and married him anyway. Or she was 18 and he was 33. Mm. Uh, he insisted that she convert to Catholicism, even though she was kind of raised Catholic, sort of, before their wedding. She did. And she quickly realized that Friedrich Mondel was really only interested in owning her he she says that uh she was kept a, a prisoner in her own home after getting married he did not let her pursue her a acting career and really didn't let her do much of anything other than you know stay home and and be his doll essentially yeah. uh like i said mondel had close ties to mussolini and uh the nazi regime he was a munitions dealer and arms manufacturer you know, fascist organizations need weapons in order to maintain their power. So he got along swimmingly with people. He was like friends with Mussolini, which, you know, just means he's a super good dude. But at at their home, he was very rich, so he owned a castle. At their castle, you know, he would <clears throat> he would entertain these people, he, these leaders and, and military people, and talk about military technology with them and discuss, you know... Uh, advancements in it and, and arms deals and secret weapons and that sort of thing. Uh, later, when uh, Hedy Lamar was would talk about that, she said that these kinds of conferences where these people would come to their home uh, were her introduction to the field of applied science and, and kind of piqued her interest in that. Uh, so she points back to that for her inventing interest. Eventually, really not, not too long after they got married, only a couple of years, uh, she decided to flee the country. <laughs> so in her autobiography, she said that she disguised herself as a maid and fled to Paris. Knew that she couldn't go back, but she also knew that she says, I was like a doll. I was like a thing, some object of art which had to be guarded and imprisoned, having no mind, no life of its own. So I don't, you know, who could blame her? So she escapes to Paris. Uh, and pretty soon after that, she goes to London. In 1937, she meets uh, Louis Mayer, head of MGM Studios, who is scouting for talent. She met him. He offered her $125 a week, like a contract to come and work for him. She turned him down, but she also got herself onto the same, uh, same ship that he was on, headed to New York. And during that trip, she impressed him enough to secure a $500 a week contract. So good for her. <laughs> Breaking that yeah. glass ceiling, you know. And on that trip, Mayer and his wife persuaded her to change her name from Hedwig Kiesler, which was the name associated with ecstasy and the whole, you know, hullabaloo around that. Uh, and so she, she took on the name Hedy Lamar as homage to the silent film star Barbara Lamar. So that's how she came to be known as Hedy Lamar. And that's what the name that she kept for her whole time in the United States. So in 1938, she gets to Hollywood, and Mayer begins promoting her as the world's most beautiful woman. And she gets a role in the 1938 film Algiers, cast opposite Charles Boyer. This is her first role in a Hollywood film. 
She was billed as an unknown but well-publicized Austrian actress, which created a lot of buzz and anticipation. Mayer had hoped that she would become another Greta Garbo or Marlena Dietrich, other other exotic beauties of the silver screen. Yeah. And according to one viewer, when her face first appeared on the screen, quote, everyone gasped. Lamar's beauty literally took one's breath away. So I know people never exaggerate in any way, but that's that like that is what she was known for. The the issue there though, in her future films, she was invariably typecast as the archetypal glamorous seductress of exotic origin, which we see in a number of the uh, uh, number of films that that she made, like Lady of the Tropics, where in 1939 she played a mixed race seductress in Saigon opposite Robert Taylor. So she's Austrian, but you know what? It's fine. She can play a half-Asian woman, but yeah, whatever. Uh, in 1940, she had a big hit with Boomtown. That was, uh, I guess, not really an ensemble cast, but she was uh, on the lead with Clark Gable, Claudette Colbert, and Spencer Tracy. So four big names on that uh, on that movie. It was hugely successful mgm quickly put uh her and clark gable back together for comrade x which also came out in 1940 in 1941 she teamed up with jimmy stewart in come live with me Hmm. playing a viennese refugee so finally finally they cast her in her actual like ethnicity and then she also starred with jimmy stewart in another 1941 film zigfeld girl uh, along with Judy Garland and Lana Turner, and it was a big success. Uh, she had a, a lot of success. She t- she turned out, you know, at least at least one film a year, usually two or more a year in the you know late thirties, early forties. Most of them were successful, and she she was a household name pretty quickly. In nineteen forty two, going along with that that kind of narrative, she played the seductive native girl Tandaleo in White Cargo. And so the story of White Cargo, there's like conflict between the men or whatever. And they're the only four white men in all of this region of Africa. And so the, the, the main story is them, you know, dealing with each other. And then she shows up as this native girl who seduces people and causes trouble. And I guess we're just supposed to believe that this native African looks like that. Yeah. Whatever. Huh. Anyway, um, so these roles, while they like, while they made the film successful and she made money, she was very bored with them because there weren't challenging acting roles. They they didn't make her really need to act. She just needed to look pretty and deliver the few lines that were written for her. This was kind of when she started giving more thought to inventing because she had nothing else to think about. So she turned her attention that way. But she did continue, of course, acting through through the 40s with some some successes. But uh, as the 40s progressed and into the 50s, um, her film career started to wane. So we're into the 40s now. So World War II is happening. She became involved in a wartime fundraiser to like sell war bonds. Um, and so the kind of stereotypical war bond rally, uh, she went around with a sailor named Eddie Rhodes and he was the plant in the audience at every at every rally so she'd go up and she'd say you know everybody you go buy war bonds and then she'd point him out and say you there come on up here and he would come up and she'd say 
you know, they'd, they'd flirt for a little bit and then she'd say, oh, should I give him a kiss? And they'd go, yeah, and she'd say, well, if we sell enough bonds, then I'll give him a kiss. And once enough people bought the bonds, then she would kiss him and send him back to the audience, and then they'd go to the next town and do it again. Hmm. So supporting the war effort, I guess. Okay. In 1945, she left MGM and uh, formed her own production company with Jack Chertok. They made a couple of films that went over budget and did not make money. So that was short-lived. Then in 1950, this is a connection to a, a different clue that we talked about in this week's shows, uh, she had her greatest success as Delilah opposite Victor Mature uh, in Cecil B. DeMille's Samson and Delilah, hmm. which won a couple of Academy Awards for art direction and costume design. And her performance also gained her a lot of accolades and, and praise. During this time, a, a little bit aside about just like how she was as a person, um, she sort of reclusive during this time, even though she was experiencing a lot of success. Uh, she didn't really like to go out and be amongst the crowds terribly much. And one story says that when asked for an autograph, she wondered why anyone would want it. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, a lot of the, the men who were writing about her talked about how, would talk about how, you know, she's very, she's beautiful and charming and, and warm and kind and all that, whatever. One of the, one of the reports, like the, after an interview, it, it gets so close to being good, but then it, it doesn't. So, uh, author Richard Rhodes says, of all the European emigres who escaped Nazi Germany and Nazi Austria, she was one of the very few who succeeded in moving to another culture and becoming a full-fledged star herself. There were so very few who could make the transition linguistically or culturally. She really was a resourceful human being. That's a great thing to say about this person. Mm -hmm. The last sentence. I think because of her father's strong influence on her as a child. Wait, what? Yeah. So, like, we were so close to passing the Bechtel test, but then... Yeah. Nope. It's because of her. And, you know, who knows? Maybe her father's influence did help her become more, you know, easily assimilated. I don't know. But you know what? <laughs> her father's not there. He's not the one doing it. So, whatever. Yeah. But, I mean, it was, you know, it's it was the time. It was the attitude that was just generally accepted. And, of course, yeah. that's why we see that most of her roles are not really you know artistically challenging in any way they're just you know check it out she's pretty back to her film career so we had samson and delilah in 1950 um and after that it really started to take a dive um in the 50s she she went to italy to play a few roles um in a film that she also produced but the film ended up being very poorly made she didn't really have the experience or know how to like to produce a film and she lost a lot of money on it uh later in the 50s the story of mankind uh zane gray theater some episodes there they, they were critically panned and her last film was in 1958 the thriller the female animal so she did not appear in a film after 1958 she was she was signed uh for the 1966 film picture mommy dead but she collapsed during filming from nervous ex exhaustion mm. and was replaced by Zsa Gabor, who was only three years younger than her. Huh. Yeah, I saw that and I was like, oh, mm, they're moving on to a younger, like, 
a newer person, but actually they're basically the same age. So yeah, yeah. So throughout this time, Lamar was married and divorced six times. <laughs> Ooh. Well, we say divorced. I don't know that she ever got the first one actually divorced, but her first husband, Friedrich Mondel, married in 1933, ran away in 1937. And he was the uh, arms dealer and, and rich Austrian. In 1939, she married screenwriter and producer Jean Markey. And during that marriage, she adopted a boy that they named James Lamar Markey. That boy was then adopted by a later husband and so took on a different name. So her third husband, John Loder, she married in 1943 and was with him until 1947. He's an actor. They had two kids, Denise and Anthony. Mm. And then also John adopted James. And so he became James Lamar Loder. But they divorced in 1947. In 1951, she married Ted Stoffer, who was a nightclub owner and former band leader. But they divorced in 1952. <laughs> in 1953, she married W. Howard Lee, a Texas oil man. And they were together for seven years. They divorced in 1960. And then her last marriage was to Louis Bowles, who <laughs> um, they married in 1963, got divorced in 1965. And he was Hedy Lamar's divorce lawyer, <laughs> which I think is just kind of poetic. <laughs> and then she did not marry after 1965. She claimed that her the first son, the one that she adopted, James Lamar Markey, and then Lamar Loder, was biologically unrelated and she had adopted him. James, however, in 2001, he claimed that he had found documentation that he was actually her son born out of wedlock to her and John Loder, but before they were married so like he was born while she was married to gene markey even though he was actually the son of her next husband he says he found documentation i did not find anything to say whether that was like really that was you know corroborated or anything but he claims to be a biological son so she became a naturalized citizen of the u.s in on april 10th 1953 she had an autobiography ecstasy in me Published in 1966, but in 1969, she told Merv Griffin on The Merv Griffin Show uh, that much of it was fictional and that she didn't actually write it. So in, in 1966, she had sued the publisher to halt the publication because uh, she said that the, the ghostwriter, Leo Guild, had uh, made up a lot of information that was in there. But she lost the suit, so they published anyway. So she sued to stop it, saying that it wasn't true. And she lost that lawsuit which apparently means that she was still legally liable for the 1967 lawsuit where she was sued by someone who said that her book had plagiarized a lot of his material. I like shake my head at that because, you know, like she's already saying it's not true. And now you're suing her to say like, actually, you stole it. And she's saying like, actually, I didn't write it at all. <laughs> so I couldn't have. Stopped. So there's a yeah, there are lawsuits around her autobiography and like questions about it. In the late 50s, she and her then-husband, Howard Lee, developed a ski resort called Villa Lamar in Aspen, Colorado. Makes sense because uh, her husband at the time was a Texas oil tycoon, and Texans love to come to Colorado to ski. And after their divorce, he got to keep the resort. So she lost that too. So she did not have a lot of luck after film career ended. In 1966, she was arrested for shoplifting in Los Angeles. 
Much later in 1991, she was again arrested for shoplifting, this time in Florida. And she pleaded no contest and the charges were dropped after she promised to not break any laws for a year. You know, if that's all it takes to not get in trouble for breaking the law, I'll promise not to break the law again if you let me steal, I don't know, a couple million dollars. I won't do that again. Anyway, so during the 70s and later on, she became more and more secluded. People came to her and offered her, like, you know, like, brought her scripts and offered her roles and stuff, but nothing interested her enough to, to do it. Some trivia here. In 1974, she filed a $10 million lawsuit against Warner Brothers because the Mel Brooks movie Blazing Saddles has a character named Hedley Lamar that everyone in the movie keeps calling Hedy Lamar and he keeps getting angry about it. She sued, saying that that infringed her right to privacy. They settled out of court. Quick editor's note here. We discovered that Emily's audacity had stopped recording for a few minutes, so that explains her silence for the last few minutes. But she's back in now. There we go. All right. Eh, no worries. So after that, she kept like I said, kept getting more and more secluded in her life. And she retired to Miami Beach, Florida. Uh, she became estranged from her adopted son, James. He was 12. Pretty early in his life, he moved in with another family and they didn't speak for almost 50 years. In fact, she left him out of her will. And when she died, he sued uh, for control of her estate. He did not get it. He settled. So yeah, the last years of her life, she only communicated by telephone even with her children and close friends. She would talk for up to six or seven hours a day, but she didn't go and see anybody in person. Hmm. She died in Castleberry, Florida on January 19th, 2000 of heart disease. So that's her life and her career. I purposely did not talk about her time as an inventor because I want to talk about it now. Aside from her film career, she was also a fairly brilliant inventor and and very interested in in science of of multiple disciplines you know not just physics or just chemistry or just you know one thing she had no formal training so that also speaks to her like interest in a variety of things because whatever if it interested her she looked into it and there are a number of inventions that she worked on like she invented an improved traffic stoplight so the the kind of traffic lights we have now the, the road to getting there were, was, was partly in, uh, due to her efforts. She also attempted to create a tablet that you could drop in water to turn it into sparkling water, you know, like a, you know, make it a carbonated drink. Huh. But <laughs> she and the, the chemist she was working with could never figure out how to make it taste like anything other than Alka-Seltzer. So they didn't end up patenting it or trying to make any money off of it. One uh, period in her life she had a relationship with Howard Hughes, the aviation tycoon. Mm -hmm. He wanted to support her inventiveness. And so obviously he was very rich. While they were dating, essentially, he actively supported her, her hobbies. And he basically told her, I'll give you a team of scientists and engineers and they'll do what you want them to do. You know, try stuff out, do some things. And so she did. She also offered suggestions to him about how to uh, make his airplanes a bit more streamlined. She like took pictures of like birds and, and fish and like showed him how like animals are aerodynamic 
and how that could apply to his airplanes as well. So she helped him out too. You know, she was able to to try out a few different things, like a glow-in-the-dark dog collar and uh, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. a system to help movement-impaired people get out of the bath. Uh, I don't think that ever actually came to fruition, but it was something that she like looked at and worked on. But by far the biggest thing that she is known for with inventing is the frequency-hopping spread-spectrum technology. During World War II, she learned that uh, radio-controlled torpedoes, which were kind of new, could easily be jammed by enemy transmissions and set off course. So her thought was, okay, how do we, you know, what can we do to create radio frequencies that can't be jammed or would be much harder to be jammed so that these torpedoes can be used properly and, you know, hit the targets that they're supposed to hit. I love this because she didn't go to, uh, you know, a scientist or an engineer, you know, specifically. She went to her friend, composer and pianist George Antale, to help her develop a device for doing just that (laughs) and connecting to another clue that we talked about from this week together they designed and synchronized a player piano with radio signals they they put it together to uh, be a machine that would hop frequencies so what happens is instead of using a fixed frequency which means that your frequency is just traveling at one one wavelength uh, Mm -hmm. the whole time, which can be easily disrupted if other transmissions of the same wavelength come in. It can, you know, jumble that and and throw it off or whatever. What frequency hopping does is it it chooses a particular bandwidth and then it makes the frequency, the frequency itself move to different frequencies within that bandwidth so that it's, so that it's not one fixed frequency it's far less likely to be jammed because it's not interacting with any one thing at any, you know, uh, the whole time and it's not as predictable. And the issue there is that the thing sending it and the thing receiving it have to be looking at the same frequencies at the same time. So what you, what they did was they developed a system that uh, synchronizes the transmitter and the receiver so that it's, they're always looking in the same place at the same time as the frequencies mm-hmm. are moving around. So that's that's the invention that they created. And frequency hopping was not new. They didn't invent that idea, but they developed a system that was much more like robust and capable than had been before. And so they created it, they got it patented, and they took it to the, the US government because this was this was in 1941, and so we're kind of at the beginning of the war for the United States. But the US Navy wasn't really interested in implementing new technology in what they had. Uh, so the patent just kind of sat there, didn't do anything for a while. In the 1950s, however, there was a a big push and call for new patents to come out to like invigorate the American economy and, and the scientific sector and all that. And so this patent was kind of dug up and brought back out, and it led to a bunch of um, advancements in civilian and military technology. One instance is in 1962, the Navy finally had started using this technology. And at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, they had these frequency hoppers installed on their, on their ships during that, uh, during that time. And much more recently, like we saw in the clue on Jeopardy, the frequency hopping has led to the 
ability to create and use GPS and Wi-Fi and things like that. Wi-Fi wouldn't work if it were fi fixed frequency, or at least it wouldn't work nearly as well because it would constantly be interrupted and jammed and scrambled by other things that are on the same or similar wavelengths. Because we have tons of signals going around all the time. Mm -hmm. So many devices sending out radio signals or, or microwave signals or other things like that. If it weren't constantly hopping, it would get interrupted all the time. Yeah. For you listeners listening to this, you have Hedy Lamar and George Hentale to thank, as well as the other people who helped the, the technology along in the process, but for being able to listen to it. So yeah, that's the frequency hopping. That's what she's best known for as an inventor. Cool. Yeah, it was really cool to read and be like, oh my gosh. Because if I only know her through her Hollywood career, essentially she's like, yeah, she was a good actress, but she didn't really have opportunities to act all that much. She really was just a bombshell, right? Mm -hmm. But also she and her composer friend came up with this like incredible technology that has advanced our technological society. <laughs> yeah. So there we are. That's Hedy Lamar. Cool. I had no idea. Yeah, me neither. All right, you ready for this quiz? Um, am I ever really ready? Yes, I'm ready for this okay, quiz. Okay, I don't have a title other than just Hedy Lamar. Well, okay. actually, my, the, <laughs> the title that I put is The Quiz That Fails the Bechdel Test. Because as okay. I wrote these clues, I realized I was like, oh, man, I keep like turning toward men <laughs> like who are, ten who are mm -hmm. like tangential to Hedy Lamar. But all right. Question one. Hedy Lamar developed frequency hopping technology with composer George Antale. George was American, but studied and traveled through Europe in his youth. After some years in Berlin, he had a chance meeting with Igor Stravinsky, who immediately took a liking to him. Stravinsky convinced Antale to move to Paris, which he did taking up residence in a one-bedroom apartment above a famous bookstore on the Seine owned by Sylvia Beach. What is the name of that bookstore? Is this... Is, it, is this the English language bookstore? It, is this Shakespeare and Company? This is Shakespeare and Company, yes. It took me a long time to get to that answer, <laughs> to get through that question there. But yes, it is Shakespeare and Company, yeah. So, um, George Entail... He, his autobiography is like the bad boy of music or whatever. He, he was an avant-garde composer. Uh, he did a lot with later on electronic music and, and you know, modern atonalism and, and what people would consider strange and very avant-garde sounds. Uh, but yeah, early on in his career, when he was trying to make a name for himself, he lived above Shakespeare and company. Yeah. Nice. 10 points. All right. Question two. This is a movie question. Hedy Lamar had a relationship with Howard Hughes that allowed her to pursue scientific endeavors. Hughes was portrayed by Leonardo DiCaprio in the 2004 film The Aviator. He was nominated for an Oscar, but was beat out by the incredible performance of Jamie Foxx in another biopic, Ray. However, Leo's co-star won an Oscar that year for portraying another Oscar winner. For five points each, who was that and who did they portray? I think it was Kate Blanchett portraying Catherine Hepburn. And you are correct. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. She is the only person to win an Oscar for playing an Oscar winner. I had to do the uh, pause and make sure that I've got the right Hepburn. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're not at all similar, but they are both named Hepburn. Yeah. So your brain can mix those up very easily, even though if they yeah. were standing next to each other, you'd be like, well, duh. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. All right. Two for two. Question three. 
Speaking of Howard Hughes, Hedy Lamar offered him help with his airplanes to make them more aerodynamic by examining the shapes of birds and fish. This didn't help keep his massive project from being a total failure, though. For five points each, what was the name that he gave to his Olympian airplane, and what was the sarcastic name that it came to be known by? Oh, no. I don't... I don't know what name he called it. I assume the Spruce Goose is the sarcastic name. Yes. (laughs) The Olympian name. Is that what you said? The Olympian name. That is Um, what I said, yes. I should take a guess for Olympian... Um, let's, let's say Zeus. Oh, that rhymes. Let's say Zeus. Oh, wow. That would be really good if it rhymed. Uh, but no, it's not Zeus. But yeah, we are talking about the Spruce Goose, which every time I say that, I want to say Spruce Moose because of the Simpsons <laughs> episode where uh, Mr. Burns becomes Howard Hughes. Uh, hmm. anyway. <laughs> I, um, now I've got Dr. Seuss going in my <laughs> Goose juice, not moose juice. It's juice for a goose that's right the but the name that he like the official name of the plane is the hercules oh okay yeah which i guess hercules wasn't technically olympian all right question four this one may be a bit heady frequently hopped beers such as ipas tend to have higher measures of ibus what does ibu stand for oh no I ought to know it, but I don't think I do. What could the B possibly be? I think I'm going to say the U is for unit, but I don't know what the I and the B are for. Beverage, <laughs> barometric, <laughs> beer. Uh, um, <laughs> all right. Um, yeah, I don't know. Just give it to me. Uh, okay. Uh, it is International Bitterness Unit. Oh, bitterness! Oh! Yes. Uh, yeah. I was going to slot in an in- international for the I if I didn't come up with some sort of IB combination that made mm. sense. Oh, that makes so much sense. My sister, who is a beer aficionado, a podcast aficionado, and just took the Jeopardy test, is going to, is going to uh, <laughs> be very, very ashamed of me. I'm sorry, Casey. I'm sorry. Anyway, yeah, so IBU is International Bitterness Units, and what those actually measure are the parts per million of isohumalone, which is the acid found in hops that gives beer its bitter bite. Hmm. Today I learned that. <laughs> um, all right, question five. Anne Hathaway studied Hedy Lamar's mannerisms and breathing to prepare for what 2012 film role? I wonder if Michelle Pfeiffer, Halle Berry, or Eartha Kitt studied her as well. Oh. Catwoman. I think this is Catwoman. I'm going with Catwoman. It is Catwoman. Yay! Yeah. Yeah, so it turns out co-creator of Batman, Bob Kane, based Catwoman like on Hedy Lamarr as, as well as another actress, Jean Harlow. So th- those two actresses were the inspiration for Catwoman. Yeah. All right. You got 35. Pretty good. Um... I'll make it a... How are you feeling about your final question? I'll give you the category. It's technology. Yeah, give me the category. Technology. Uh, category is technology. All right, I'm going to wager 20 points. Okay. Frequency hopping technology existed before World War II, but was limited and almost exclusively used for military purposes. After the 1950s, civilian use of the technology expanded. Nowadays, a very common type of that technology uses 
adaptive frequency hopping to avoid the more crowded radio frequencies when communicating between devices. What is this modern technology called, sharing its name with the Danish king who brought Christianity to Denmark? Um, early on in the question, Bluetooth came to mind as something you might be heading toward, and I'm not confident about the Danish king, but I think like that feels like maybe it's ringing a bell. I'm going to say Bluetooth. Bluetooth is correct. Yay. Yeah, you got it. Yes, that's Harold Bluetooth. It's the Danish king. He was also king of like Norway after some expansion too. But yes, it uses adaptive frequency hopping. So uh, that's, a, that's a more advanced way of Bluetooth maintaining a clear signal and a clear connection. It has its bandwidth that it can hop around, but, if, but it, it avoids frequencies within that bandwidth that are more crowded so that it, mm. it can hop to the ones that are more clear. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. All right, so you have, what, 55 points? Yeah, that's 55. 55. Nice. Well done. That's that's good. That's a good quiz. That was fun. Thanks. Yeah. All right. So now we know all about yeah. Hedy Lamar. It was a good deep dive. That was a, that was an unexpected topic. So. Yeah. Yeah. It was outside of my wheelhouse for sure. So I'm glad I did it. It, it was it was very interesting. I'm I that expanded my mind in in a lot of ways. So yeah. And hopefully it expanded our listeners' minds, too, at least a little bit. Speaking of our listeners, thank you for listening. We really appreciate getting to, getting to share this with you. It is good to be back. Make sure that you are subscribing and reviewing and rating and doing all of the other ings, all of those other gerunds that, that help us out. If you feel like throwing a few bucks our way, you can check out our Patreon. That is patreon.com slash potentpotables have subscription levels uh at different price points that will get you different things and you can see all that information on the website anyone who's subscribed at three dollars or above has access to bonus content like our goat episode and one of these days we're gonna um chat about the online jeopardy tests that happened this past week yeah also at ten dollars a month you do get a shout out on the podcast (laughs) so we we do have a ten dollar a month patron so this is a shout out to Michael. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael. We appreciate you. Tell your Jeopardy loving friends about us, or you know, your Jeopardy hating friends. You know, we'll take the hate listens. Yeah, you know um, what? <laughs> we don't care. <laughs> if you want to come yell at us on social media, we're on Twitter at Potent Potables One. We're on Facebook at Potent Potables. You can email us at potentpotablescast at gmail and our website is potentpod.com. We'll be back next week with another week of Jeopardy recaps. So until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Bye.